Today, as we begin our message, I want you to fold your hands, not like you're praying for a meal, but kind of interlock your fingers and fold them together, you know, kind of like when they told you, you know, here's the building, here's the steeple, look inside, there's the people type thing. And I want you to fold your hands like this just for a second because it represents the book of Genesis. And if you can use this as a teaching tool, it will help you to remember what's in the book of Genesis. So in chapters 1 through 11, we have seen basically four legends that includes lessons, and they are represented by four fingers. They represent creation, fall, flood, Babel. But this is interlocked and in this interlocking with the narrative, there are four people in chapters 12 all the way to the book, end of the book of Genesis in chapter 50. And they are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And these are interlocked. And what we're going to find is just like we saw in Genesis 1 through 11, there is a rehearsing of some of the history of the nation of Israel and we're going to see the same thing in the story of these four people. Now, please be reminded that Genesis is not a collection of standalone stories. There is an overarching theme in the life of this one nation. In other words, Genesis is not Aesop's fables. It's written more in the way of an unfolding narrative that expects the next chapter. And so we reach a climax as we come to the end of the book of Genesis, where the nation of Israel was going to be in a position to grow, and that leads us into Exodus, and as a nation, they are moving forward in their history. Now, the Bible as a whole is interlocking as well. So we have four events and we have four people, but you have these books called the Pentateuch and the historical books and poetical books and the prophetical books, and they are all interlocking as well because this story is going somewhere, and it is all pointing to this nation that brings the Messiah, the Savior of the world, into our experience, into the focus of what God is doing in the world. I love the way Nadia Bowles-Weber says it about the Bible. I was listening to a podcast this past week, and she mentioned that the Bible is the cradle that holds Christ. Boy, I like that imagery. The Bible is the cradle. It's not an end in and of itself, but it's the cradle that holds Christ, and it keeps pointing to Jesus. So we are taking a many-mile journey as we wander and as we wonder and as we worship God to find that he is fully revealed in the person of Jesus. I want you to think about three things today, what it's like to be a wanderer, a wonderer, and a worshiper, because that's a great outline for the life of Abraham that we are introduced beginning in Genesis chapter 12. The hope of the book of Genesis begins in this chapter as we see God initiating a relationship with a resident of a city called Ur in the region of where? 
Babylon. Do you see this keeps coming back up? This region of Babylon keeps coming back up because ultimately the book of Genesis is going to recount the journey of a man coming out of the region of Babylon, moving toward a land that God will show him. And that's what those post-exilic Jews are going to need to do as well. They need, they need to take the same exact journey from Babylon back to a land that God is showing them. So here's the point. From Abraham's loins, God will eventually make a people and eventually give them a land, though it's not simply for the sake of having land. It's so that they will become a nation that will give this legacy moving forward to be found in the person of Jesus Christ. God is making a nation, and their destiny is to be the tool that God uses to restore order to the chaos that we were introduced to in Genesis 1 through 11. So let's use that outline this morning, and let's begin with Abraham the Wanderer. We are told in Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 27, now, these are the descendants of Terah, and Terah was the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran was the father of Lot. Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, Chaldeans is another way of saying Babylonians. So, what we are told is there is a man by the name of Terah, that chooses to leave this city named Ur. And this is an important starting point in the story of Abraham, because it is basically the same journey that is going to be taken by the people coming out of captivity in Babylon, and as they move back to the land that God had promised initially through Abraham in what will become the Abrahamic covenant. So here's this same journey. Now, in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 12, we are not told why they exit the land of Babylon. So in other words, God is going to choose to start a nation with a group of people that are coming out of Babylon, and we're not told why. Here is a family that are like refugees, looking for a better land. And as they are looking for a better land, they carry with them a lot of baggage. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, we're told that Terah was an individual that had an idolatrous past. He served other gods. You can look that cross-reference up in Joshua chapter 24, verse 2. But what made this father of this family take this perilous journey? It's a long journey. It's a time-consuming journey. There appears to be no command given to Terah. In other words, he takes his family and he sets out on this journey, and we're not given the reason why. Welcome to the Bible. Welcome to the world where details are not always given to us. We are left to guess. We're not given the answers many times to the questions that we have deep inside of us. But it is possible, it is quite possible, 
that the story of Abraham, like the story of Adam that we already looked at, is another story of Israel in miniature. And what we find is that in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 12, we are told now that God does speak to Abram, he'll later be called Abraham, even though he did not speak to Terah, he chooses this man, Abram, and it's all an act of grace. There's nothing within Abram that would merit God calling and choosing Abram to set out on a faith journey. Listen, it says in verses 1 through 3, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. Can you imagine Abram telling his wife, Sarah, hey, we're up and we're moving. And she might ask the question, well, why are we leaving? God told me to. Where are we going? I don't know. When are we going to get there? I don't know. What is going to be there when we arrive? I don't know. But God told me. And this is what he promises. In verse 2, God says to Abram, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, listen, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In those three verses, is sort of like you're driving a Tesla. It goes from zero to 80 in a split second. In this zero to 80, three verses, we find that Abram, this pagan, this son of this idolater, is being chosen, and he is being given a promise that he is going to be blessed, and he's going to be a blessing to the entire world. So in these three verses, what we find is a land, and what we find is that Abraham, pictured like Adam, is going to be at the fountainhead of multiplying and, and, and creating a new nation. That happened with Adam, that happened with Noah, being fruitful and multiplying. And each stage of Israel's journey is like a new beginning. And it's a reminder that this journey is ultimately to try to find someone who will go back to the creative purposes of God that was given in chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis. So he's a wanderer, aren't we all at times? We are wandering through this life trying to find the answers to many of the deepest of life's questions. And many times it's just a journey of faith. We take it one step at a time. We take it one day at a time. And trust me, it doesn't go as fast as a Tesla. It doesn't go from zero to 80 in a split second. But it does go around corners and it meets new challenges. And what we find with Abram is that there's going to be a family line that comes from his loins, but he's going to have to overcome some obstacles along the way. And so that leads us from Abraham the wanderer to Abraham the wonderer. Now, what do I mean by that? You see, when this promise was given to Abraham that he would be the father 
of a nation that would be a blessing to many nations, he didn't have an heir. He did not have a son. His wife, Sarah, was barren. Now, there are some intervening chapters here, but if you go to chapter 15, we find the concern on Abraham's lips when he says this, after these things, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, and he said, giving him some assurance, do not be afraid, Abram, I'm your shield, and I am your reward. I'm your shield, and I'm your reward. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Now, in the intervening chapters here, what we find is somewhere along the way, Abram made some money. And what we find is that he gets rich over the course of this journey. He's able to afford a servant. This man's name is Eliezer. He's from an area called Damascus. But Abraham himself does not have any children. Sarah is barren. And she's quite a looker. She's this hot 65-year-old. And what we're told is that uh, that everyone wants to have her as part of their harem. And twice in this section of Genesis, there are a couple of individuals that want to take Sarah into their harem. Abram, on both occasions, will lie, and he will say that Sarah is his sister and not his wife because he's concerned about his own skin. And so we see another dynamic of Abram, He's a bit wayward at times, so it's not like he's a perfect individual. Here is this foreign refugee that is told to go to a land that God will show him. He's going to lie along the way about his own wife, Sarah, but what we find is that Sarah herself cannot have children. And then he says here, in verse 3, Abram said, you have given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. He's a slave owner. But the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. That's the way the New Revised Standard Version translates it. In other words, no one but someone from your own body will be your heir. And he brought him outside, and he says, Look toward the heaven and count the stars if you're able to count them. And then he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And then notice what Abram does. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. So in chapter 15, Abram the wanderer is an individual that asks God a question. How am I going to have this legacy since I am childless? Now, even though Abraham believed in the promise of God, he just didn't know how God was going to fulfill that promise. We too are wanderers, aren't we? God makes a promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us, and yet we meet up against some challenges that we don't understand how God is going to resolve. Now, in this situation, common sense will tell him and 
his wife Sarah, then maybe she needs a surrogate to give a child to Abraham. And so as we fast forward just for a few moments, we find that Abraham is an individual that is told by his wife to take another servant, a handmaiden by the name of Hagar, to sleep with her so that she would become pregnant and give Abraham a son. Now, this is another point in the text where Abraham probably should have not listened to Sarah, but just like Adam listened to Eve about the eating of the forbidden fruit, we find that he basically will obey. But that's not the reason for the agreement that he's going to have this nation. No, 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 no. It's based on the promise of God, and it's not only a promise of God, it's a covenant with God. So in chapter 15, there's this strange episode. Beginning in verse 7, it says, Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So now he's beginning to have his doubts. He's childless. Maybe these other elements of promise, maybe they're not that secure either. And then this is what God said. He said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So a lot of livestock here. And he brought them and he told him, cut them in two, laying each half over the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcass, Abraham drove them away. What's going on here? So you have all of these animals, and they're to be cut in two. And one side is to be put here, and the other half is to be put over here. And what we find is God is going to pass through these two pieces as a way of cutting a covenant to show that he is the way maker, the promise keeper, and the light in the darkness, just like we sang earlier in the song. Abraham, even though he has his doubts, he obeys God. He takes these animals, he cuts them in half, and then there is this symbolism. God puts Abraham into a deep sleep. Verse 12, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. Okay, ding, 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 ding. Who else was put to sleep before God was going to do a great work? Adam. And God cuts open Adam and takes a rib. This is the symbolism to create Eve as his helper. You see, these are all interlocking, these stories here. So Abraham is in a deep sleep, and it says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain. Now, he's in a deep sleep, so who knows if he hears this subconsciously. But it says, Know this for certain, that your offspring shall be aliens in a land that is not theirs, and shall be slaves there, and they shall be oppressed for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with a great possession. And as for yourself, you shall go to your ancestors in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation 
for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Okay, that's a whole different side uh, road to go down. However, notice this, your descendants will come back here. He's already saying they're going into a foreign land, Egypt. Of course, this is previewing their time away in a foreign land in Babylon, and they're going to be coming back. And then it says this. Okay, ding, 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 ding. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. So there is this, this smoking fire pot and a flaming torch that goes between the pieces of the animals, symbolizing God walking between these two halves of an animal as he's cutting this unconditional covenant with Abraham. Abraham's not doing anything here. He's in a deep sleep, right? And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Where? To the two places they were held in captivity, Egypt and Babylon. Now, as God passes through the middle of it, again, there's this symbolism. The first time the people exited out of a place of slavery in Egypt, what happened? The Red Sea splits into, and God passes through. And it's a reminder that as God passed through the two halves of the animals, as God passed through the Red Sea, leading them into freedom, so God is going to continue to do the same for these people that are coming back from their time of captivity. So in chapter 15, you have this cutting of the covenant. Now, Sarah's still childless. She's barren. And she has her doubts. And so she proposes a sister-wife arrangement. This sister-wife arrangement is for Abram to go into Hagar and have a child with her. And so that's what Abram does. And the thing that we're told is that Hagar is not just a slave girl to Sarah and Abraham. She's Egyptian. Verse 1 of chapter 16, Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, bore him no children, and she had an Egyptian slave girl whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, You see that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my slave girl it may be that I obtain children by her. And listen, Abram, listen to the voice of Sarah. He should have stopped right there and said, no, no, God said it's going to be from my own loins and from my own family. But this reminiscence of Adam listening to Eve is a reminder of trouble that is ahead. And certainly this trouble will come about as Hagar gives birth to a boy named Ishmael. And Ishmael begins to grow, and Sarah remains barren. And we find that there is another 13 years that go by. Can you imagine this? Another 13 years go by after Hagar is giving birth to Ishmael. And then God is going to appear to Abraham another time, chapter 17. And in chapter 17, we see that this one who's a wanderer, this one who's a bit wayward at times, this one who's a wonderer about how these promises are going to take effect, is now a worshiper. 
And in chapter 17, we have a ratification of the Abrahamic covenant again. In verse 1, it says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me, be blameless. I will make my covenant between me and you, and you will be exceedingly numerous. Now, as you go on down, in verse 9 it says, I want something of you, Abraham. I want you to cooperate with my promise. Verse 9, God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout the generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Okay, circumcision is the cutting away of the foreskin of the male. And of course, God has already cut the animals in half, has passed through as a ratification of the covenant. Now Abraham is called upon to agree to obey this promise and to worship God alone, Yahweh, as his only God. And he's going to cooperate by himself being circumcised, his son being circumcised, and the rest of the males being circumcised. There's another cutting of the covenant here in a symbolic way. And what we find taking place is, at this point, Abraham becomes a genuine believer that God is going to give to him a great legacy. Well, you jump forward, and we find that it takes a little while, and we're told about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot in between all of this, but by the time you get to chapter 21, finally this promise comes about. And it tells us in verse 1 of chapter 21, the Lord dealt with Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to his son whom Sarah bore him. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Abraham's 100 years old at this point. It's taken a long time for this promise to be fulfilled. But the promised son finally is born after decades of waiting now, everything's going to be okay, right? Everything is going to go smoothly, right? No. Now that Sarah has a son, she doesn't need Hagar anymore. So she expels Hagar and her son Ishmael. And as they are sent away with a Dixie cup full of water to survive in the desert, we find that God is going to have to come to Hagar. And that's what he does in verse 8. It says, The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on that day. Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, playing with her son Isaac. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not inherit along with my son Isaac. All of a sudden, Sarah is not cooperative to the plan of God in all of this. And yet, what we find is that God will come to Hagar in the desert 
and make a promise to her as well that she too and her son will become a great nation. And so the story has now started between the Jewish people and the Arab people. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. So now everything should be okay, right? Abraham's a worshiper of God, and then we come to chapter 22. And in chapter 22, God appears to Abraham again, and he tells Abraham in verse 1, after these these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. Now, that's a bit unnerving, isn't it? Doesn't it bother you that Abraham now is told to sacrifice his son Isaac? Um, What kind of test is this? He waited so long for this son, and now Abraham is saying, go up to this mountain. And so he does. He's this faithful worshiper that's going to obey God's lead. The only thing we don't understand is his unique umwelt, the way he sees the world. We don't see it the same way, but he sees this as an act of giving the firstborn back to God. Now, in the Torah, there's this this promise of giving the best to God, whether it's livestock or, in this case, in Abraham's world, giving back his son. Paul has an interesting comment in Romans chapter 4, kind of in passing, but he mentions Abraham and how Abraham believed God was still going to carry on the promises through his son Isaac. How is this going to take place? We don't know. We don't know whether he thought that Isaac would be resurrected after he offered this sacrifice. But Israel's God steps in at this point, and it becomes crystal clear that God never wanted him to sacrifice. In fact, Abraham anticipates this as they're carrying the wood up for the sacrifice. Isaac turns to Abraham and says, well, where is the uh, ram for the sacrifice? And Abraham says, the Lord shall provide. But Abraham comes almost to within a tenth of a second of taking the life of Isaac when God intervenes. In verse 12, he says, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham looked up, and he saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. Boy, this is very, very strange dynamic to the 21st century ear. It seems as though God is calling Abraham to a unique and radical kind of faith. God's command to Abraham highlights this radical and risky nature of full trust in God because it takes us into places that we would not go on our own. Maybe this is the risky nature of being a worshiper of a wild God. 
So we have seen Abraham is a wanderer, a wanderer, and a worshiper. He's a bit wayward at times. But he illustrates for us the way of faith. In fact, he is called the father of faith. It is said that he is declared righteous. And three times in the New Testament, it was it, uh, Paul will tell us that he believed and it was credited to him for righteousness' sake. Well, we notice first that the way of faith is not certainty, right? I think you know that by now. I know that by now, that following this God of the universe at times is like wandering. At times it's like wondering. At times it is worshiping without certainty. And so this story for us here is we who are the wayward sons and daughters of God keep on wandering and wondering and worshiping despite the obstacles and the opposition that we run into. And we're actually told in the book of Hebrews what Abraham was thinking. In chapter 11 of Hebrews, we're told that Abraham was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. We're all ultimately waiting for God's kingdom to come to pass. This is the kingdom that God introduces to us through the person of Jesus Christ. So the faith of Abraham is the faith that leaves country and kin in order to find God in greater truth. The faith of Abraham is the faith that subordinates all loyalties to the living God, including the most demanding loyalties of country and kin. The faith of Abraham is willing to live as an alien everywhere if this is what it takes to distinguish God from the idols of country and kin. The faith of Abraham is what expands the blessing of God from my country and my kin to the families of the whole earth. The faith of Abraham subordinates the family of Terah to the family of God. The faith of Abraham forsakes the city of Babylon to find a new Jerusalem. The faith of Abraham is the faith that finds it is the fulfillment of a life of following Christ. Amen. So the life of Abraham is a metaphor for the life of faith. We are on a journey that reaches toward a promised future, but we might come up short in our own lifetime. But it is worth the journey of wandering and wondering and worshiping, even in the midst of our doubts. Because ultimately, that is what sets the legacy, not only for the next generations, but for God's kingdom to grow. So we, as persons of faith, keep on until our dying day, wandering, that's okay, wondering, that's just fine, and worshiping without certainty. God is faithful if you will keep on the journey. Amen.